Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome back to Unfair Advantage. I am super excited to be joined by Eric Corum today. Eric, how are you? I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Um, For those of the audience who may not know you from your prolific professional career, could you just tell us a little bit about your background? And then we're going to jump right into some of your specialty areas. Sure. Um, First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very humbled and honored. Um, but yeah, I, prior to my current career, which is I'm the founder of a company called AIM7, I spent about 16 years in collegiate and professional football. I started as a traditional strength conditioning coach, then uh, really helped pioneer the field of sports science in the US in 2011. I brought athlete wearable tracking technology from Australia to Florida State, where I was the, <laughs> I started as the speed coach and was promoted to director of football operations. That's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> but uh, we started using that data to understand what was happening on the field. We quantified the game of football for the first time and then reverse engineered that to improve the way that we trained and developed our athletes. And we had some phenomenal results. And we had great coaches, great players. We had like a 88% reduction in injury in one year. Team went on to win a championship, uh, AC championship in Orange Bowl. And then after that season, the NFL sent folks in and we're like, all right, what's going on here? And this led to the mass adoption of this technology across a lot of different sports, including the NFL. And so I went on to have a career um, in high performance. That was kind of my goal was to be the first high performance director, really not the first. I wanted to bring this kind of holistic thought process to how we developed our athletes. I did that at the University of Kentucky. But while I was there working for Mark Stoops, I started a PhD program. And what I really wanted to study was I had noticed that with elite athletes that I worked with, I also worked for about 14 years in professional track and field and coached a number of Olympic gold medalists in the sprint events from the Jamaican system. And I'd noticed that whether they were a sprinter or a football player, didn't matter what sport, they were highly adaptable to stress, physical and psychological stress. So I wanted to understand uh, the contributors to this. And so I started, my research was in how sleep impacts our brain's ability to adapt to stress. And while I was there, I was fortunate to have a graduate assistant named Chris Morris, who's now the director of applied performance there. And we did the foundational research um, on fluid periodization, which I can explain later. Chris has done a phenomenal job. He's actually the chief science officer for AM7, went on to the NFL, and then uh, left the uh, left my career in sports in late 2020 to start AIM7. Man, you you have been through a lot. You've done a lot. You've, <laughs> you've been, worked at some pretty high octane places. But I, I want to pick up where you left off with your research. I know when you and I first connected, mm-hmm. one of the touch points we really aligned around was this idea that stress is not necessarily harmful. Stress isn't something that needs to be managed that stress paired with recovery can actually be helpful. So Mm. let's start with this idea of sleep and stress from your research. What did you learn and how did this point you down the path of, you know, maybe stress isn't so bad after all? Yeah, I think it's 
it started with my understanding of what stress really is. And I think you summed this up beautifully. Um, you, you know, you say stress is our body and our brain preparing us to do something effortful. And I remember you saying, I think it's the best description possible, but there's nothing you can do in life where you want to grow and get better without stress. If you want to get stronger, guess what? You have to apply a mechanical load to the body. If you want to improve your aerobic capacity, got to apply mechanical and metabolic loads. Um, if you want to improve, you want to learn a new skill, you have to deliberately engage in the deliberate task of learning, right? You want to learn a new language. You want to learn how to code. You want to be a general manager. You got to learn about player personnel, et cetera, et cetera. The system that enables us to adapt and learn and overcome is wired through our experience of stress. And so, you know, stress was something that we deliberately engaged in in sport. So I'm like, okay, how do we leverage this so that we can get better faster? Because that's what everybody wants in sports, right? The team that can learn the fastest, adapt the fastest, get the most quality repetitions in and stress themselves in the most appropriate manner is going to win. So I started thinking about, this is just the real simple part of my brain. <laughs> what are three, what are the things that we can't live without water, food and sleep? And so I was like, huh, I wonder if sleep impacts this whole thing. And so from a foundational standpoint, I want to kind of highlight a few things that sleep does. And I can tell you about our research. Is that okay? Yeah, please. So from a high level, you know, overview the purpose of sleep is three things, restoration, detoxification, memory, and learning. There's so much more that we still probably haven't unpacked about sleep, but I think it's really important to understand how sleep works in this adapta adaptation process. So from a restoration component, um, there's overwhelming evidence that sleep enhances our immune defenses, which keeps your body in an optimal state of adaptability. You know, sleep is very important for initiating adaptive immune responses that eventually produce long-term immunological memory. So basically, like when your body encounters a foreign invader that it's fought off before, it can quickly respond and like neutralize this threat. And here's the interesting thing. During wakeful hours, you're, the two systems that are wired to kind of promote the stress response, the HPA axis and the sympathetic nervous system are down-regulated during sleep, okay? And this enables your immune system to upregulate, and it creates this immunological memory. And so your stress response and your immune system are all kind of tied together. And it's really important that if you want to be healthy, thrive, and adapt, that your immune system is able to respond. In addition, when you sleep, there's restoration from a hormonal standpoint. Um, right now, we're seeing a drastic decline in testosterone, especially amongst males. And most of our testosterone was released during sleep. And there's significant research that demonstrates that, you know, fragmented sleep or sleep apnea can dramatically lower testosterone levels. As a matter of fact, in older males, you can literally predict their waking testosterone levels by sleep duration. And one week of sleep restriction to just five hours a night reduces your testosterone by 10 to 15%. And this is a condition experienced by 15% of the U.S. working population. And I would say a lot of people in sports, you know, so testosterone is really important for tissue regeneration. When you sleep, growth hormone is also released. If you suppress certain, certain parts of sleep, you can reduce that. 
Um, there's tissue regeneration, detoxification. Okay. So your brain has this detox system called the glymphatic system. All right. And we started learning about this around 10 to 15 years ago. And it's essentially a system that allows the inflow of cerebral spinal fluid to go into your brain, to kind of mix with interstitial fluid. And then it transports fluid and metabolic waste products out of your head. Mm. Uh, and it clears out key proteins associated with neurodegeneration. And this system is primarily active when we sleep. So if you think about adaptation, anything that's going to inhibit or produce systemic inflammation is going to prevent adaptation. Well, your brain is going to be an inflamed state if it has metabolic waste products stuck in it. So literally while you're sleeping, it's clearing out all this crap, so to speak. And this is a reason why scientists believe like you ever had a great night of sleep and you feel really revitalized, but then you have a poor night of sleep and you feel like you kind of have brain fog. Yeah. Well, now we're able to start going, okay, this is what's happening here. And if you Google this, you can find some really amazing brain imaging of how the system works. And then the final thing I'll say around adaptation and sleep is memory and learning, memory and learning consolidation. So the process for learning is literally stress plus sleep, uh, because this is the process for neuroplasticity. So when you engage in something very difficult, uh, your body releases catecholamines. Uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine, which kind of create this sense of heightened alertness. You know, your heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. You ever sat down, Alex, to learn a difficult subject and you feel kind of this sense of agitation and it's kind of hard to get into it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, but I'm I'm also not that bright. So that's a fairly common experience. <laughs> yeah, but when you do this, this is your brain going, okay, it's time to learn. It's releasing these... Uh, catecholamines. At the same time, there's a neuromodulator release called acetylcholine. What acetylcholine does is it goes to the neurons in your brain that were used, that like it marks these neurons that are being used during this learning process. And then when you sleep, those neuronal connections are actually strengthened. And Tononi and Sorelli are the ones that came up with this. It was called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis. Now it's been demonstrated to actually happen, but I love this line. They say sleep is the price your your brain pays for plasticity. I'll say mm -hmm. it again. Sleep is the price your brain pays for plasticity. So you can grind all day long on learning new uh, athletic skills, learning something new for work. Um, but if you don't get restful and fulfilling sleep, it's kind of like all for nothing. Um, and your brain actually selectively strengthens and weakens these connections because if it didn't weaken these connections, your brain would literally keep expanding. So there's like this expanding and contraction of tissues. It's really wild when you kind of get into it. So those are like the three things that we know, big, big bucket things that are happening during sleep. Um, and there's a whole host of other things that are going from a metabolic standpoint, hormonal standpoint, but I think it's really important to reiterate, we have regeneration, we have detoxification and memory and learning. What we found in our research was we were studying um, 
what are called biological states of readiness or how ready is the human body to adapt to stress. And you can measure this via something called heart rate variability, which is a measure of that autonomic nervous system, right? That, and we talk about stress, you know, you ramp up fight or flight or rest and digest the parasympathetic sympathetic balance. And then there's, so that's the autonomic nervous system, but you can also measure the brain through something called DC potential or direct cortical or direct current potential. It's a slow cortical potential of the brain that really represents the metabolism of the brain. And this, both of these things really came out of the Soviet space program years ago. They were the ones that did the original research on this because they want to understand the effects of long haul space flight and uh, DC potential. They've actually found there are certain millivolt ranges that if you fall within these ranges that your ability to learn and acquire a new skill is better. There's tons of research into mental health. You can look at the absolute millivolt potential, the, the, the geometry of these different curves. It's, I mean, when you get into the literature, it's fascinating. We found that seven to nine hours of sleep, this was with college football players, put them in the optimal state for adaptability. Ironically, that is what the National Sleep Foundation also <laughs> recommends. So, you know, there, there's really hard, there's, there's some hard lines on people are like, well, I can sleep five and a half hours a night and I'm fine. You're most likely don't have the genetic polymorphism for that. That's like a fraction <laughs> of 1%. So don't think you're that special. Um, and I'm not trying to say that in a derogatory manner. I'm just trying to say it in what people are like, well, I feel fine. Well, sometimes we don't even, our normal or baseline is so low. We don't even know what excellent would feel like. So, you know, seven to nine hours of quality sleep is going to set you up to be able to adapt to physical and psychological stress. There's so much good information in here. And I, I love the three buckets you broke it down into. And, you know, I, I think there's even more, obviously, you could unpack, right? Like we know that sleep helps clear the brain of plaques and tangles, which, you know, reduces risk of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, right? Like get some of that out of there in the detoxification stage. Um, we know that like with this sleep deprivation you're describing at the end, right? That after about like, I think it's 28 hours or so, without sleep, really high quality sleep, you're functioning basically like you're drunk, right? Like there's all oh, these yeah. really, really cool things people have done in lab studies to show that your, your functioning deteriorates really rapidly. And I think the most neat one I saw was like, I think after about, I think it was three days maybe of less than six hours of sleep, you know, most people have the cognitive functioning of about a fifth grader. Um, and you, you think that these are some of the people running the most important organizations we have. These are people running high octane sports organizations who are willingly restricting their own sleep. Um, you know, it's obviously hugely problematic for all the reasons that you mentioned, but certainly a performance perspective. You said one thing that, you know, really jumped out to me and it's, it's because I use similar language, but you said sleep is the price you pay for plasticity. I often talk about sleep as being an investment in future performance. And so now you're giving me this idea that, you know, sleep is also an investment in my future, like brain development, right? Which totally makes sense for everything that we're talking about. But the idea that it's something that you do that helps you be better in the future and is not some, um, you know, detraction from getting work done or being productive, right? I think is super, super important. We could stay on sleep forever, I think, but... I know one of your 
one of your specializations, one of the things that you have really developed some science around and are, are sort of leading in is this idea of building adaptive capacity. I'm wondering if you could explain what that is and walk us through your five pillars. Yeah, so I, you and I both agree that you can't manage stress, right? Like we can't manage what happens in the stock market. We can't manage if we were to pull into an intersection and somebody hit us or a loved one decides to act irrationally, right? What you can do is you can build more capacity to adapt to stress with a less physical and psychological cost. Let me give you like a real simple example that I saw play out in college athletics. I think a lot of people would understand. A freshman comes in and um, their first practice with the team, you know, two hour practice, let's call it in football. They are just completely smoked, right? Maybe they only got 30 or 40 reps in, but they are just smoked. I often hear coaches be like, man, the freshmen are out of shape, right? Well, the reality is, is the physical, now everybody's the same, right? From a physical standpoint, they're a scholarship player, the other person's a scholarship player. So the effort required is much higher. The cognitive load is much higher. Everything now is significantly more difficult. So they have to build the capacity to adapt to that stress and bounce back. That senior now goes through that same practice and they're like, man, that was nothing, right? It's this capacity. That is what we want. We want to build capacity to adapt to more with less cost. And there's basically five pillars for doing this. Um, sleep, what I call mental fitness, exercise, nutrition, and living in community. Um, in addition, these five pillars also prevent the most common lifestyle diseases in America, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity, which count for almost $4 trillion in spending about 20% of our GDP. So in order to build capacity, you have to invest in these five pillars. And um, you want me to talk a little bit more about like how to do that? Or where would you like to go with this? I mean, I, I would love first, I want to hear what you put into the mental fitness bucket, because I lo love that language. And I think it's gained some traction, <laughs> particularly since uh, the onset of COVID when people have started to think more adaptively about that. So I'd love to hear what's in your mental fitness bucket. Um, but then I, I also, I'm going to push you a little bit, I want you to prioritize the buckets for us, like what, what Ooh. do people need most and why? Ooh, this is good. Um, Mental fitness, we kind of have a definition that's kind of similar to psychological flexibility, but we, we say mental fitness is the ability to consciously be present and process information without bias, which will empower you to respond quickly and rationally to changing circumstances through committed actions anchored in your values. So it's this idea of being aware of what's going on in your head to be able to process it in a very mature and unbiased way, and then mm -hmm. to act in a way that's in line with your values. And you and I had a great discussion on this. So I think this is very similar to psychological flexibility. Yes. Um, and I think that encompasses really everything that we're looking for. Because if you think about it, what do people really want at the end of the day? When the crap hits the fan, they want to be able to make decisions and act in a way according to their values and what is true to themselves, right? They don't want to lose control and act irrationally or not be able to access 
you know, fluid intelligence and go, Oh man, I had this thing in my brain here, but I was so stressed out. I couldn't really access that. You know, they're narrow, they're vision focused. They get tunnel focused and they can't make an appropriate decision. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, to me, the best way to develop, one of the best ways to develop this is the practice of mindfulness. Um, we know that there are a lot of wonderful physiological benefits like increased anxiety, depression, burnout, improved biomarkers for stress, improved executive functioning, less mind wandering, but um, improved HRV, which is something, you know, a lot of people want to see. But my friend, Dr. Peter Haberl says, you know, attention is the currency of performance. I love that phrase. And how do you harness your attention? You have to be mindful of where your head's at. And so mindfulness is a wonderful tool. I would put mental fitness in like my top two. Okay. If you want to know where it's going to be ranked. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to know what's number one then. Number one, and this goes back to Bruce McEwen's work. He's a world famous neuroendocrinologist. He's the one that um, came up, well... Allostasis. Do, do you want to talk about allostasis really quick? Yeah, yeah. Let, really why, why don't you uh, give us like the the quick and dirty on allostasis and allostatic load? Yeah. So really simply, allostasis is the body trying to achieve stability through change. It's the body trying to stay in homeostasis or this internal balance, right? That's what we want. Our bodies are masterful at adaptation and they want to kind of keep this internal consistency. The thing is, is that um, there's nothing wrong with going from zero to 60. Okay. It's just, you got to be able to come back and get back to norm. But every time you encounter stress, there's a cost. Okay. And allostatic load is essentially the cost of adaptation. And when the load is chronic, and it exceeds your ability to, to cope and adapt, that's when bad things happen. That, so stress isn't the enemy. Stress is the gateway to growth. The problem is, is when you don't have the capacity to adapt to massive amounts of acute stress or the chronic stress is just too much over time. So acute stress that's within your capacity is phenomenal. It's the, every time you go and exercise, you are deliberately turning on every stress system. As a matter of fact, if you were just to look at all the quote, negative things that happen after an exercise session, you'd be like, this is terrible for you, <laughs> but it's the way you adapt and grow, right? So I would say the number one thing that everybody needs to be doing every single day is they need to make sure that their circadian rhythm or circadian clock is anchored. And this goes right back to Bruce McEwen's work. It was actually, as I was doing a recent re-review of everything, it was the first thing he mentioned in uh, how we can set our bodies up for adapting to stress. So every day we ascend and descend this continuum of alertness and calmness, right? You wake up in the morning, you slowly ramp up this, this, this continuum to be more alert during the day and at night, hopefully you want to fall asleep and go to bed. This process is driven by our relationship to light. When you view sunlight in the morning outside, it kicks off a cascade of hormonal and neurological events that directly impact allostasis. So by anchoring your circadian clock, you have a, a better opportunity or your body's better able to regulate stress. And so here's simplistically how this works. I'm going to give you a little science because I think it's really important. People maybe are talking Please. about this, but they don't understand the mechanism. I think it's important to know. So when you go outside, 
the quality of light and the intensity of light um, interacts with something called you know, your light views, your eyes view the light. And then it sends a signal to this bundle of nerves called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It sits right above the roof of your mouth as part of the hypothalamus. The SCN or suprachiasmatic nucleus is the circadian pacemaker. Okay. And then it sends signals to every other cell in your body that it's time to be awake and alert. And it does this in a couple of ways. One, it increases cortisol, which is excellent. You and I both talked about cortisol gets a bad rap. You want cortisol spike in the morning. Okay. And then number two, it increases temperature of your body. And then it also kind of sets off this internal timer that later in the day to increase melatonin. So all of this is driven by light viewing. If, if your circadian rhythm is dysregulated, you're going to be in trouble. So things that can regulate circadian clock are light, temperature, humidity, food, and exercise. So that's why when you move across time zones, you can get really dysregulated quickly. So one of the best things you can do if you go to a new time zone is start eating on their time zone, viewing sunlight on their time zone, getting as much sunlight exposure so you can start anchoring your circadian clock. So all you need is about, if it's bright outside, five to 10 minutes in the morning. Okay, you could do this on a walk. If it's really cloudy, or you live a part of the world where it's, you know, northern hemisphere type stuff, it's going to take a little bit longer, but you can do it in chunks in the morning. So that is like, everybody needs to do that. And then in the evening, when the sun goes down, guess what, the lights in your house should start coming down. Because if light is a alerting mechanism in the morning, what's it going to do at night, it's going to keep you awake. We were not designed to live indoors. This has only happened in the past 100 years or so, you know, so maybe 150 years. Our bodies are anchored to our environment. So just get outside and do that. You will be, I have a friend right now. He's an entrepreneur. And I ran into him a few weeks ago. He is just every sign of what we would call overtraining in sport or burnout, complete burnout. First thing we started doing is like, man, we got to get you outside in the morning. Just within a week, he's like, oh my gosh, I have so much more energy. <laughs> Just that little behavior. But it's usually the smallest things that have the biggest changes. And that will totally change your sleep um, and a whole lot of other things. So I would say that'd be number two. That'd be number one is anchor your circadian clock. You know, make sure you're getting enough sleep. And then the mental fitness component is super important. Um, number three, you want me to just keep going? Yeah, let's round up the list of five here. Yeah, I'll go quick. Exercise. Oh my gosh. It is. There's some amazing, I'm actually doing a lot of research on this right now for a little podcast I'm doing on um, the crossover relationship between exercise and stress resilience. But just to keep this at a very high level view, when you deliberately engage in exercise, you're deliberately turning on the stress systems. HPA axis, sympathetic nervous system. So it's almost like you're kind of flexing this muscle a little bit. So when you're in, so from a generic standpoint, and along with the immune system, you're becoming more and more and more resilient to all sorts of disease factors, mental health factors, or mental health diseases. I mean, it's unbelievable. So you need to move. Okay. The, the government standards of 150 to 300 minutes of exercise of aerobic exercise a week are a must. Um, there's a research paper that just came out, I think it was published in circulation with a study of over 600,000 people. 
And they found that doing double or even triple that reduced all cause mortality of over 25%. If you wow. add weightlifting into it, it's over 30%. So everybody take home from this 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity to vigorous intensity, aerobic exercise, and at least two weightlifting sessions a week. That's, that is possible by everyone. Um, this improves cognitive performance, prevents neurodegeneration, enhances neuroplasticity by increasing BDNF. I mean, so many great things. Uh, number four is nutrition. I would just say, look, there's not one perfect diet for anybody, you know, like or for the whole world, I should say, different people respond differently, different things. But we do know that eating an anti-inflammatory diet com uh, composed of like multicolored fruits and vegetables, whole grains, healthy oils, quality sources of protein, reduce systemic inflammation, enable us to re uh, effectively repair our tissues, um, just phenomenal results, impacts your brain and body in a wonderful way. And then the last thing I would say is like living in community. You know, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that life is meant to be lived together and not alone. And staying connected is very critical. There was a paper published in the British Psychological Society that points out that greater social connectedness during lockdown periods was associated with less worry and fatigued as well as lower perceived levels of stress. Um, and staying connected in times of stress creates a buffer against poor mental and physical health outcomes. And I think you would know more than anybody else dealing in team sport that in a trusting team environment, it like lowers the physiological responses to stress. Trusting environments do. It impacts testosterone. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure you've probably seen those studies about film watching. And when somebody was in a group that had a trusting environment and they're watching, you know, their mistakes on film, that their testosterone levels were higher the next day versus what they're being you know, torn down and ridiculed in front of their teammates that had an acute drop in testosterone. It's pretty wild. Super fascinating. Super fascinating. So I would just say, you know, go back to these five things, you know, you got sleep, which would include circadian anchoring, um, mental fitness, living in community, nutrition and exercise. Those five things, as simple as they sound, if the basics are done, with ruthless consistency, uh, you're going to be able to you're going to be able to expand your capacity to adapt to more physical and psychological stress. I really appreciate the depth here, and I think one of the things that I'm noticing and listening to you walk through it is that in many of these buckets, there's like an overlap and a potential for upward spiraling in a really mm -hmm. cool way too, right? So you're talking about them as kind of individual pillars, but you and I both know that things like exercise and nutrition work together or sleep and exercise work together or mm. social relationships and mental fitness work together. Um, or, you know, if you're extending into your new work, right, social relationships and resilience work together. And so hearing these foundational items listed out this way, and then also knowing kind of how they can connect and how they can enhance one another, I think you're right. It's a super strong foundation for health and high performance. And so I love this explanation. Eric, I feel like we could spend forever together talking <laughs> about this. So we're going to do round two. There's no question about that. But I know you worked really hard on these five pillars. And I want to make sure there's a chance for you to at least share how that's come to life for you with what you're now doing with AIM-7. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about what AIM-7 does with these five pillars. 
Yeah, uh, I really appreciate you saying that, Alex. And I would agree that there's kind of like this multiplying factor. If you do one and you add another, you add another. It's not just A plus B. I think it's like A times B. Um, but yeah, with AIM-7, going back to my experience in sports with athlete wearables and measuring all these biometrics, we realized that we had just tons of data. At the, this is the early days. And we're like, what do we do with this to actually prove performance? And when we did, we had like some amazing outcomes that really unified people within the organization. Everybody was kind of seeing things through the same set of eyes. Well, when it comes to the consumer market, I started getting curious in 2019, like, huh, you got all these people with wearable devices like Apple watches and aura rings. You go down the list. I wonder if they know how to use this information to improve their performance. And did some market research and found that the number one most common complaint by wearable tech users is their data is useless because it's just data, right? These devices like show you, Hey, you're sleeping five hours a night, but like, what do I do with this? So a friend of mine, we ran a pilot. We asked a bunch of people like, what do you want from your wearable technology? And the number one thing we heard was more energy. If this device could help me feel better, it's worth whatever I have to spend on it. We were able to, we did a pilot. We were able to not only predict people's energy level, we could predict their energy and mood state multiple days in advance and then identify actions they could take to mitigate, you know, bad outcomes. So high performance is, you know, consistently achieving your performance potential with minimal perturbations. So we were able to start saying like, oh, if we see this, we do this. And guess what? The outcome is mitigated. So where we are with AIM-7 right now is we have built a solution that tells you exactly what you need to do each day for your mind, body, and recovery. So you can look, feel, and perform your best. And so we do two things. One, we give you re daily recommendations for your body. So for instance, anything you track on your Apple Watch, any type of exercise, we'd say this type of exercise is the best exercise for you today based off of your exercise history. This is how hard you should go and this is how long you should go. This is using our research on fluid periodization. Then from a mental standpoint, we do some cool things to kind of assess your mental state that day. And then we'll send you tools that you can use like in the moment. So for instance, let's say we notice that you're stressed out. We may send you a breathwork tool or your mood is down. We could send you a gratitude tool. And then we, our algorithms create personalized sleep and napping recommendations. What I think people love is that we don't stop with just what do I do today? The first week you're in AIM-7, we analyze all of your wearable and questionnaire data. And then we send you this report on day seven. It's like, hey, Alex, like here's your mind, body, and recovery breakdown. But here's the one area you need to focus on. And then we unlock these personalized goal setting features and then content from some of the best experts in the world that will teach you how to fix that. So it's like identify, give you the tool, create a goal, and then educate and empower. And we built this for busy people. We didn't build this for people that have three hours a day. We built it for people that have like three minutes a day. So like, there's literally no data visualization right now. It's just recommendations and actions. And um, we're about to unroll this here really soon uh, into a beta community. We'll be um, only letting small numbers of people in at a time. As a matter of fact, uh, we'll put a link, you can put a link in the show notes to sign up at aim7.com. And if somebody's interested from your community, just make sure that they write in there, they heard us about aim7 on your podcast, and we'll move them to the front of the line. We've got about 2000 people on a waiting list. 
because um, it's going to be a white glove experience. They're going to get Zoom calls with us. It's going to be a really cool, we're trying to create a really strong community. And we're going to do this for about the first 10,000 people in the product. That's awesome. I love yeah. it. Super cool what you have done and worked on. Thank you for joining us and sharing some of your expertise. And like I said, this is no doubt just round one because there is so much more we can unpack here. I feel like we could spend a single episode on each of your five pillars. Before I let you go, where can people find you, learn more about you? Obviously, I'm happy to drop a link to AIM7 in the show notes, but are you on social anywhere? Is there anywhere else people should reach you or uh, read along with your work? Yeah. So um, I also have a, pod, a podcast called The Blueprint. It's also built for busy people. It's 15 minutes long, 20 minutes long at the most. You've been a guest, three episodes, crushed it. But it's uh, <laughs> cutting edge science, leadership, and life skills. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Eric Corum. And I have a newsletter you can sign up for called Adaptation on my website, ericcorum.com. It's just a quick email on Fridays, something for your mind, body and recovery that you can implement today. So I really appreciate you having me on. This has been such a blast and a, and a privilege to be on your show. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.